0: We are continuing today on this Picnic Sunday, which I've never been a part of before, but I've heard some really exciting things, so I look forward with the anticipation. Now, I am scheduled to be in the dunk tank today at 2 o'clock, all right? So, yeah, that'll be fun. I am hoping that the, that the heavens open up and either the Lord comes back or rain comes down at 1.50. That would be perfect. That's what I'm hoping for. But we are continuing to work through the book of John. We are in the middle of John chapter 7. And we've been studying John for the purpose for which it has been written. And so here's where we're at this week. We are in the middle of this eight-day feast. It's an eight-day feast. It's a celebration. We kind of likened it to the old uh, camp meeting uh, Memories that some of us have growing up and Jesus here is in the middle of this feast and he's kind of showed up almost like an uninvited guest lecturer. So he's teaching uh, but he really hasn't been invited to teach but now at this point he's amassed such a crowd that is interested in hearing what he has to say. And the goal of what Jesus is sharing, what he's saying, what he's trying to do, is he's trying to teach the audience who is there about who he is. Answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And in this section that we're going to dive into today, we're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 25 to 39, if you want to turn there a while. The goal of Jesus' message today, where we're going, is to know Him. To truly know who Jesus is. And so that's the goal we want to uncover and unpack today. And it's, it's amazingly interesting that in just these 14 verses, there are 16 different proclamations that Jesus makes about Himself. 14 verses, 16... 16 proclamations that Jesus makes regarding himself or regarding his Father. And so, as we turn to this passage today and dive in to look at what the Lord would have for us, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we open up your word this morning with the anticipation that we will unpack this question of knowing Jesus, and perhaps there's not a more important question that every one of us in this room should answer. Lord, that we would know you. Lord, that we would know your Son, that we would know the power of his life, the power of his blood that was shed for us, the power of his resurrection, how he conquered sin and death. Lord, that we might know him for who he truly is. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would work and your spirit would move within the pages of your words this morning. That that knowledge of Jesus might cause us to change and live differently. As we go from this place, that there would be conviction, that there would be inspection of our own hearts, of our own minds. Lord, that we might consider what you're trying to teach us through these words today and how our lives should look differently In light of these proclamations that your son makes to this group that he's teaching. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for his work. We pray that our lives would be a reflection of that. Would you move now, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. This is John chapter 7, verses 25 to 39. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, this is the eighth day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So at the beginning of our text this morning, there's all of this confusion about who Jesus is, about what he's doing, what his intentions are. He's already, he's already been teaching this group and we're moving into the latter days and people are continuing to ask questions regarding Jesus' identity. There appears to be this lingering air of uncertainty surrounding this question of who is Jesus? Who is he? If indeed Jesus was the man who earlier the Pharisees had sought to kill, now was their chance. Jesus was out in the open. He was speaking openly. He was teaching boldly. And he was doing it in the temple courts. Remember John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath as he healed the man at the pool of Siloam, but he was even calling god his own father making himself equal with god if the religious leaders in the minds of the jews who had gathered to hear jesus teach if, if the religious leaders were no longer seeking to kill him if they were no longer seeking to have him arrested perhaps their minds had been changed perhaps Maybe they had become convinced that Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah, the Christ. But the people here are confused. And there's all these questions that they have. And, And there were these views that were kind of prevalent in that day regarding the coming of the Messiah. There were different schools of teaching, different ways that different rabbis taught about the coming Messiah. Some rabbis taught that the Messiah would be unknown until he appeared in effect to bring Israel's redemption. So they thought the Messiah is going to be unknown until right before he effectually secures the redemption of Israel. So they're shocked because they know this man. How could he be the Messiah? Other rabbis taught that no one would know the origin of the Messiah. Yet the people here believe they know where Jesus came from. The people in their minds thought that they knew Jesus. But their knowledge of Jesus, friends, was resting on who his parents were and on where he physically had come from. They believed that they knew that he was from Nazareth, dwelling in Capernaum. And this is the perfect time for Jesus to speak Into the confusion. Verses 28 and 29. In these two verses, two verses, Jesus makes eight proclamations about himself. In just these two verses, you can count them as we read them. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. You know where I come from. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Him you do not know, I know him, I come from him, he sent me. We ultimately want to remember that Jesus is teaching here, and this is all part of his great lesson to the listeners who were Jewish that had gathered to hear him. Of the 16 claims, 8 of them in these two verses. There's three statements here regarding the knowledge of the people or their lack of knowledge. There's five statements regarding the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? When he asks these questions, you know me. You know where I come from. It's very ironic because, again, he knows that their knowledge and what they're basing their knowledge on is misguided. The idea that Jesus is pressing into here is that the people think That they know him. They're judging based on appearances. Remember last week what we talked about? This is not the proper standard to judge by. Jesus shared about this in his teaching last week that we were covering. We're not to judge based on appearances. Yet by all appearances, the people knew who Jesus was. Because they could identify as mother and father... And because they knew where he had shared that he had come from. They know his physical origins. But that doesn't mean they know Jesus. They're blind to who he really is. And so Jesus continues to reveal more about himself to them. I've not come on my own accord. John chapter 6 verse 38 affirms this. It's in your notes there. For I have not come down from heaven... For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus wasn't on earth going around doing his own thing. He did not work on his own accord, but everything that he did was perfectly in line with what the Father had for him to do. And the people were continuing to miss the reality of who Jesus was. Look at these eight proclamations right up there on the screen. I know the blue doesn't come out so well, but you can count eight of them there in two verses. So Jesus continues to press in. He who sent me is true, and perhaps the most condemning line of all of them is that fifth proclamation. Remember who Jesus is teaching. He's teaching people who who had been trained in the synagogue. He's speaking to religious leaders, maybe some of the religious elite. Of his day, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious zealots, people who would have been grossly offended if a man would stand before them and claim that they did not truly know the Father. and Look at what he says in the fifth proclamation. Him you do not know. You can't see me. You don't know me. You won't recognize or understand what I'm doing because you do not know the Father. The most educated, the most trained men, Jesus is declaring guilty of not knowing God. And Jesus is able to make this indictment against them because they've rejected him. And friends, he's setting them up for the rest of eternity. It's it's the reality what was true back then is still true today. People who claim to know God, but reject Jesus as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior, do not know God. That's the reality that Jesus is pressing out in front of them. The world rejected him. His own people rejected him. He was crucified. John chapter 5, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John chapter 5, verses 42 and 43, this is Jesus teaching, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. John chapter 6, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Appearing to be still unaware, Jesus again makes it clear in his final three proclamations here of the first eight. I know him. I come from him. He sent me. And so friends, there's a division here at the beginning of our text this morning between what the people think they know about Jesus and what Jesus really knows About the people. And I don't know if you like to highlight. Some of you might like to highlight or underline in your Bibles. There is a word that appears seven times here. In these first four verses. If you look down at your text. Seven times in these first four verses. You find the word no. K-N-O-W. No. So if you're an underliner, if you're a highlighter, that is a clue that the theme here of Jesus' teaching, what He's trying to do is to help the people truly know Him. Truly know Him. Because they had missed Him. What is important for us to realize here, church, that appears to be clear and evident in our text, is that it's possible For us to know a lot about Jesus without truly knowing who he is. That's kind of a scary thought. But it's one of the realities that Jesus is pressing in front of his listeners here. And this, that we can never truly know God or have a relationship with him if we don't truly know Jesus. And friends, do we think that that's countercultural today? I I certainly do. I certainly believe it, and not only do I believe it, but I've heard it taught in other places, and maybe you've heard it taught too, that it's all the same God. It doesn't matter which faith you believe in. Whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, one God is all the same. It's taught in many universities around this world, in this country. And this reality that we're saying, that Jesus is identifying here, that's simply not true. They're all not the same. Friends, our Father, our God, is only truly known in light of how we define and understand His Son, Jesus. If Jesus was just a prophet or a good teacher, we do not serve the same God. If that's all Jesus was. If Jesus was just a good man who was nice and loved a lot of people, we do not serve the same God. Unless Jesus is truly Lord, Messiah, the eternal Savior, God, we do not serve the same God, friends. They are not the same In spite of what we might hear, in spite of what our culture says, our faith is defined by how we identify, define, and relate to Jesus. Somebody said to me once, well, you talk a lot about Jesus. I said, well, I don't have any other person more significant in my life to talk about than him. I don't know if there is one. You know, we can say God. A lot of people say God. But we don't always know what they mean. When they say God and, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I have to ask for a definition just to understand if we're coming from the same planet on an understanding of who God is, because a lot of times I find that we're not friends, I think it's important that when we're talking with people of our own faith and they talk about God, when we're talking with people of other faiths, of other religions when we talk about God, we always need to start with being thankful for Jesus, for who He is, and for what He did. And as we're having these conversations, with, they could be friends, they could be family members of other faiths who believe differently. I think it's important that we have to ask them to define Jesus. We have to ask them to define who he is because their understanding of Jesus and how they define Jesus will reveal to us the condition of their hearts, whether or not they truly know him or do not know him. And we must remember, friends, that it's only Jesus who has the power to transform a heart and a mind. And when presenting the gospel to people of other belief systems, Jesus must come first. He must. He said it himself. There's no other starting point for the Christian faith than Jesus Christ. All, All gods are not the same, friends. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. The truth and the light. No one can come to the Father, can know the Father, can have a relationship with the Father, but through me. So friends, this is a key for our faith, a key for our discussions with our friends, with our family members that might talk a lot about God and maybe even say they know a lot about God. We have to ask them to define their relationship with Jesus because a right relationship with the Father begins with a right understanding of the Son. The two are closely aligned. And it's interesting in this teaching, and back in our text in John chapter 7 here, many people believed. Many believed here. Remember, at the end of John chapter 6, everyone was leaving. The teachings were too difficult. Well, here Jesus is pressing out realities about who He is, pushing Himself out in front of the people. And the result is, people are coming to faith. They're coming to believe. Look at verses 30. And 32 of your text, 30 to 32. They were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in Him. They were convinced. Maybe they were convinced by His signs. Maybe they were convinced by His wonders. They knew about the feeding of the 5,000. At this point, I'm sure they had heard about the healing of the man in the pool. And perhaps by their signs, now connecting that with... What Jesus was saying about himself, there was belief. And the people were getting excited. In verse 32, Jesus is trending on Twitter. I mean, look, it's, it's pretty exciting. The Pharisees, they heard the crowd muttering these things. I mean, if you were hashtagging, Jesus would be up there this day in this festival. I mean, he was, he was the talk of the festival and hearts were starting to turn. People were becoming excited. Perhaps this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the revelation that Peter had come to, if you remember. So what do the Pharisees and religious leaders do? They they seek to shut down the excitement, to close it off. They send people to arrest Jesus. And amidst the commotion, Jesus is not afraid. In fact, it's quite opposite. He's bold. He's composed. He's confident. He's clear. He knows that his time had not yet come. He continues to teach. Look at verses 33 and 34. Five more proclamations here. If you're counting to 16, we had eight. Now we have five. Five more proclamations in two verses. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In the first section, the the first grouping of Jesus' teachings that we cover today, they seem to be focused on his identity, on who he is as one being sent from the Father. But in this grouping of teaching, in these two verses, in verses 33 and 34, his teaching is now more focused on his future destination. Where he's going to be. And friends, the two are closely tied together. The five realities on the screen here that Jesus proclaims about himself. And in just a few short sentences, here Jesus has told his listeners that they do not know the Father. That he comes from the Father. He's going back to the Father. They will seek him, but they will not be able to find him. They won't be able to find him. Him you do not know, and you will not find me. Compare those two lines from each of the groupings of teachings and how disheartening do you think that would have been for his Jewish listeners. Him you do not know, and you will seek me, but you will not find me. Especially disheartening statements. The consequences, friends, of a people who reject the Messiah. Of They're rejecting Him in favor of a man-centered religiosity, of holding on to their traditions, of the way that they had always done things. And it's becoming clearer and clearer. And though many had believed, there would be many who never would. And friends, I think it's important that we pause to remind ourselves that the penalty for not believing in Jesus Christ, for rejecting Jesus Christ, is eternal separation from Jesus and the Father. And, and this would soon be an eternal reality for those who had rejected Jesus. Friends, hell is a real place. It's not some illusion. It's not some illustration that Jesus uses as so many in our culture teach today. It's, it's not some kind of figure of speech. It's a real physical place, friends. And those who do not know the Father because they have rejected the Son will spend eternity in hell. They could not go where Jesus was going. They would seek Him, but they would not find Him. Jesus would be in heaven. And the Jews are confused. And their befuddlement here is evident in the next two verses. Look at the response in verses 35 and 36. Jesus is teaching them. They're confused about what He's saying. There's three questions here. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, what does that mean? Well, if, if you think about the Jews back in, in that time, in that day, not all of them were living in the land that had been promised and given to them. In fact, many of them had dispersed and were living in other parts of the world. And so the people are thinking, well, maybe what Jesus is saying is he's going to leave the city of Jerusalem and he's going to start going out to all these different places where there are Jews living among Greeks and we won't be able to find him because we won't know where he is. He'll be teaching in all these different places. He's going to the dispersion. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Where is this man going that we will not find him? What does he intend to do? And what does he mean by what he's teaching us? Friends, the feast is drawing to a conclusion. The officers have been sent to arrest Jesus. The Jews to whom he was speaking are confused. The environment is loud, chaotic. The mood is celebratory. And if Jesus has... What he said in the above sentences has been bold and caught the audience captive. What he's about to say in the next few verses would be considered shocking. In fact, in verses 37 to 39, friends, Jesus would have said something to the Jews that no other person would have ever said in their history. Verses 37 and 39 are so bold. They're so clear and they're such a clear definition of who jesus is and what he intended to do that they would have never heard these words before but because jesus is the true teacher remember that's what we looked at last week he was the true teacher who fulfills and applies the law perfectly and judges in righteousness but because jesus is the true teacher he's able to claim with great confidence what he next declares to the people and this is the final statement in our text today, and we want to spend some time unpacking it. It's so powerful. Verses 37 to 39. This is the last day of the feast. Everyone has gathered. It's a great day. Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If we had any questions last week about judging by appearances, Jesus is making it painstakingly clear to the people now that this is a matter of the heart. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, Jesus was not yet glorified. The last day of the festival, he's drawing attention to his most important words In his teaching, he wants the people to know that there's a life-giving resource that's available to satisfy their deepest needs. Now friends, I'm not sure about you, it's getting hot out. Getting hotter out, it'll only get hotter out as the summer goes. Some of you like to be outside and you like to work outside during the day. Some of you, for whatever reason, I used to be in this boat, I haven't been recently, but some of you, for whatever reason, love to run this time of year and like get up and it's really humid and you feel like there's a hundred pounds on your back, but you still go out and do it. I don't understand, but I know at the end of a run, one of the realities, the hotter it gets, the more thirsty. You are. And we were just talking about this in the car the other day. Brighton was telling me he was thirsty. And I said, it's too late for you, buddy. It's too late. Once you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. You didn't know. The goal is to never be thirsty. Then you know you're always hydrated. But you know there's something. Thirst is a desperate need. If you finish a race, a 5K, a 10K, and, and you're thirsty, and you don't get a drink, that could compound And it could start having effects in your body. You could start cramping. You could start getting lightheaded. You might even get sick physically from dehydration. It's a desperate need that must be satisfied or the end result is a person could actually die. You could die of thirst. Jesus identifies the need of some of those in the crowd. There was a thirst. And it's ironic that he's saying this in the midst of a festival where daily there had been a procession to the pool of Siloam for water which was being poured out as a drink offering on the altar. Jesus' water and blood would soon be poured out for their lives. And So Jesus first identifies the resource. He is the resource for those who are thirsty. Jesus. And friends, there are all kinds of places our culture wants to give us as resources that quench our thirst. And every one of us will leave us more and more thirsty. Every one of the resources they want to give us. We see resources like wealth. If you just have enough money, your thirst will be satisfied. We hear of resources like success. If you just are successful enough, you can get comfortable, you'll be satisfied, it'll be okay. We hear of places, resources like fame, popularity, entertainment, media, the places that our culture presses us to, to find satisfaction for our thirst, all will leave us more thirsty and more dehydrated than Jesus Himself. He is the one that's able to satisfy our thirst, quench our thirst. And Jesus told the woman at the well that those who drink of me will never thirst again. He's the resource. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, believers in Jesus Christ have identifiable characteristics. So, first, Jesus is the resource for our thirst. And once we truly know Jesus and truly have a relationship with Jesus, then there will be identifiable characteristics. Out of their heart will flow streams of living water. And the imagery here, for those who would have been hearing, for the Jewish listeners, it would be like your belly getting really, really full and then bursting Kind of disgusting, but just bear with me. That's, that's kind of what they're thinking and what they're hearing. Bursting out these streams. Streams of living water cannot be held back. They cannot be stopped. There's nothing that can stand in their way. Friends, our lives not just should look different, but friends, if we truly know Jesus, our lives have to be different than those who do not. It's not that they should look different. It's that they have to look different. Something must look different from those who do not know Him. What are the effects of water, friends? It's, water's refreshing. At the end of a, of a busy day or a hard day, at the end of a workout, we take water because it's refreshing. But friends, there's some, there's some people you get around that are just... A friend of mine in ministry used to call them joy suckers. Did you ever get around a joy sucker before? It's like you get around and you're all happy. Hey, how you doing? Oh. You know, and you're like, Pfft, suck the joy right out of you. You know, <laughs> woo. Right? But, but sometimes that's not, that's not the evidence of water right Joyce that sometimes we might need to have a little bit of that you know you got to bring us optimists and us glass half full or all the way full guys whatever it is down to earth sometimes but you know the overwhelming characteristic of a life transformed by Christ that the Holy Spirit's working in is that we're not sucking joy we're refreshing we're refreshing to people when we're around them. people are refreshed when they're in our presence because the evidence of the Spirit is at work Water is satisfying. It satisfies. It's not just refreshing, but it's also satisfying. We like it. We drink it. It's cold. I have my Yeti cup at home. I put ice in it, and I fill it with water, and that's very satisfying to me. It doesn't cultivate fear and anxiety. I never get scared or anxious when I'm drinking my water. It doesn't, doesn't happen. You know, but there are people, there are friends, there are folks that when we get around them, they cultivate fear and they cultivate anxiety, and we leave and we feel like, oh my goodness, I am so much more anxious and fearful <laughs> after spending five or ten minutes with that person than I was before I got to them. And, friends, the evidence of the work of the Spirit of our lives is that we're refreshing, we're satisfying. How about the healing nature of water? The healing nature, water has an incredible property, an incredible power about it that it can heal. And yet, friends, we know we get around some and we see some, and this is in the media almost daily now, that are corrupt or vain. The opposite of healing, they cause damage. They cause damage to the ministry. They cause damage to the church because of their behavior. It was unfortunate. I was, I was actually, this was such a hard conversation for me to listen to. The other day, I was with a, a group of friends that I coach with, and they were talking about the hypocrisy of Believers. And how they, one of the coaches commented that in the church, you find the worst hypocrites. And I was like, wow, what happened? What happened to him that caused him to think that way? And man, I wish that he could see some real brothers and sisters. And see the refreshing, satisfying, healing nature that comes from a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who have been transformed by the power of the Spirit. Because we're not perfect Sure, we all make mistakes and mess up, but that hypocrisy should not be the identifying characteristic of our life, of our ministry. Friends, water is also cleansing. It has an incredible power to clean, right? You can put water in something and wash it. It's refreshing, it's satisfying, it's healing, it's cleansing, it's not impure. And yet, brothers and sisters, we see impurity. Impurity. So many places in our culture, in our world, and sometimes from friends that claim to be believers in Christ. And one of the challenges I thought about is wrestling with this text is, friends, how do people identify us in the public as a church? Can, can they say that we're refreshing church? Can they say that we're satisfying? Can they say that we're healing? Can they say that we're cleansing when they're around us, that they feel that way because the effects of the Spirit are so evident in our life that living water is pouring out and that's the effect that we're having on people who come into our lives. Jesus is talking about the Spirit here. And when Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, it is never given without effect. Friends, when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and His Spirit indwells you and seals you to the day of redemption, that Spirit is never given without effect. It produces something in our lives. The Spirit is powerful. He is God. He has effect in our lives. And there is identifiable fruit that should be evident in the life of every true believer. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. What should that fruit look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The evidences of the Holy Spirit should burst forth from our lives. Like this illustration of streams of living water that cannot be held back. The defining characteristic of our lives, friends, should be love. When people look at the church as a body, as people, not a building, but as us who are here together in these pews, we should be defined as a people who know how to love and love well, because we've been loved and loved well and loved fully. These evidence should flow abundantly like streams that are uncontainable and uncontrollable. Jesus here, friends, in these last two verses is describing what the lives of those who believe will look like after He is glorified. After He's gone, the defining characteristic, the evidence of of the Spirit's work that I'm going to send, that I'm going to give, is that it's going to produce streams of living water, and my people will be defined by the fruit of the Spirit. Take a look down at verse 39. He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were yet to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And friends, we know that the Spirit would be given following the glorification of Jesus. So those who believed while Jesus was walking the earth, they were not yet permanently indwelt or sealed by the Spirit. This is what we witness at Pentecost at the opening of the book of Acts. This is why the book of Acts is such a wonderful book. And when you open it up, you see these men sitting and they're waiting. What's next? And the tongues of fire represent the Holy Spirit. Come down, they rest on them. And Jesus gave his spirit. He didn't leave us without a counselor, without a guide. And that spirit should be producing something in us. So church, there's some challenges for us here Today in this text. First, do we truly know Jesus? In other words, has Jesus revealed Himself to you in a way that has altered the course of your entire life? Maybe you were once defined as a joy sucker. Maybe that was the characteristic of your life. The way that people defined and described you And you know as you sit here today beyond a shadow of a doubt that your life has been transformed. The course of your life has been altered because you've been confronted in a true and real way by the person of Jesus. And friends, there's a question. I want to share this question. I think it's a powerful question. It's a question that you can ask and answer in your own mind to be sure. And the question is this, when did you first recognize your need for Jesus? a great question friends if you want to know do you truly know jesus are you truly in a relationship with him i mean maybe you know a lot about him for those of us that grow up in church we know a lot about jesus for 16 years of my life i could tell you everything i had all the answers i had been to every vbs in a 20 mile radius of my house over and over and over again thanks mom but i didn't truly know jesus I didn't truly know Him. He revealed Himself to me in a very real way that led to my salvation, and I am so thankful that I recognized my need for Jesus in the bench pews of Rollinsville camp meeting the summer after my freshman year of high school. I'm so thankful for that. And friends, there's a challenge here. Do we truly know Jesus? Have we ever had need for Him? Do we recognize when we first needed him second is this is the evidence of his spirit flowing like streams of living water from the patterns of our lives is the fruit of the spirit always in season abounding in your life you know pastor tom he loves peaches <laughs> pastor tom peaches go out of season don't they they, they, they go out of season But for us, friends, for the believers, for those of us that sit here together in fellowship in the church, the fruit of the Spirit is always in season in our lives. It should be. It never should go out of season. And finally, as our team comes this morning to, to lead us in a final song, closing song, one that's so appropriate for our text today. Have you found yourself compelled by Christ and motivated by love to share His love with others so that they too might know the real Jesus and know the life-giving, life-altering effects that comes from a life united with Him, empowered by the Spirit. Friends, if this is I had, a, I had somebody tell me this the other day, if Jesus Christ is the most significant person in my life and the greatest relationship that I have, And I've known a person for two to three years that I've never shared him or shared about him with them. Do I truly love that person? And that was a challenging question for me. That was one that hits the heart. Man, I'm so glad I have older men in my life that ask questions and say things like that to me because I was challenged by that. I was challenged by it. But, friends, are we motivated by love and compelled by Christ to share his love with others so that they too might know the real Jesus? being in a relationship with Him, that He might reveal Himself to them, following the example of Jesus at the feast, speaking boldly to those who do not yet know Him. Next week we'll conclude this time of Jesus at the feast, we'll conclude John chapter 7, and we look forward to what Jesus has for us then.